We want to welcome you if you're joining us for the very first time. You've never been a part of one of our services or one of our live streams, or maybe you've never seen our television broadcast. We are so thankful uh, to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us uh, for this very unusual and yet very special service on this day. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading in verse 36. We're going to read what may be a familiar story to many people, but I want to take a little while for us to turn to this story and to learn the lessons that it teaches us, especially in a time like this, when there are storms that are raging all around us. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 36. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want to begin by just telling you the title of this message because I think it's going to provoke within you some thoughts that maybe we need to address for a moment. The message today is entitled, If the Creator Can Sleep, Then Why Can't You? If the Creator Can Sleep, Then Why Can't You? Now, that's a provocative title, and I know that some of you are already thinking in your minds, doesn't the Bible say somewhere that God never slumbers and God never sleeps? And the answer to that question is absolutely. In Psalm 121, verse 4, it says that God never slumbers and he never sleeps. But I want you to think about that title in a little bit of a different way, especially as it relates to this particular story that we read here a few minutes ago. I want you to think who it is that's in the boat this day. It's the disciples of Jesus Christ, and it's Jesus Christ himself. Let me ask you this question. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the sinless Son of God. He is the God-man, the perfect God-man. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was there at creation. Actually, it says that there was nothing made that was made apart from him. And so it would be right for us to say that Jesus, who's in the boat on this day, is in fact the creator. And in his humanity, Jesus is sleeping. He's got a pillow, and he is laid out on that pillow, and though the storm is raging all around him, he is fast asleep in the boat on that day. So that it would be right for us to say, if the creator can sleep, Jesus in his humanity in this boat on this day then why can't you and I sleep? Now, the reality is that that title isn't meant to draw you into a theological discussion about God's attentiveness to mankind. The purpose of that title is to draw your attention to a contrast between the anxiety of the apostles and the calm of the Savior. And probably you noticed that as we were reading through that text 
The disciples of Jesus are filled with fear, and yet Jesus is totally at peace, and he's sleeping on that pillow in the stern of that boat. Jesus at total peace. Have you ever had a time in your life when you had such fear, such anxiety that you couldn't sleep? You ever had a time in your life when you were so filled with worry that you rang your hands and you walked the floor, you didn't feel like eating? I mean, your whole life was just turned upside down. That's exactly how these disciples with Jesus felt on this particular day. I've had an experience like that in my own life more than 20 years ago. I developed a hacking cough. I was 39 years of age, and that hacking cough just wouldn't go away. I tried to treat it with over-the-counter kind of medications. It was springtime, and I figured, well, it's got to be something related to the spring and to the pollens and to those kinds of things that were taking place at that season of the year. But when it didn't go away after several weeks, my wife finally convinced me to go see a doctor. The doctor examined me and He decided to treat me for asthma or give me medication that would help with what he thought might be asthma. But when that cough didn't go away, even after those treatments, I called him back and I said, I need to see you again. And I went back to the doctor and he did a more extensive test, several different tests actually. And on this particular occasion when I was there, he decided to take a chest x-ray. I'll never forget that afternoon that the doctor's office called me and they said, Mr. Lemming, we need you to come back to the doctor's office for an appointment as soon as possible. I made an appointment for the very next day. I knew that something wasn't right. And on that day of my appointment, I took my wife with me and we went to the doctor's office. We arrived there. We waited in the waiting room for a few minutes and we were eventually taken back to an examining room. Mary sat in a chair over by the wall. I sat up on the examination table. And in a little while, the doctor came in carrying a folder in his hand. He sat down on a little stool with wheels on it over next to a counter. He opened up that folder, and he began to read for a few moments. And then he turned to me, and he said something to me that I will never forget for the rest of my life. Again, I was 39 years of age at that time. That's more than 20 years ago. He said, I have some bad news for you. You have cancer. He didn't say, you might have cancer. He didn't say, we're going to test to see if you have cancer. He said, I have some bad news for you. You have cancer. In the next few moments, he did a few more little things by way of examining me, and then he asked us to follow him down a hallway. We went back to his office. We sat down, Mary and I sat down across from him at his desk, And for the next probably 10 or 15 minutes, he spoke to us about the importance of being positive in the battle with cancer. If you're going to win this battle with cancer, you've got to keep a positive attitude, not just the treatments. You've got to keep a positive attitude. He reached over to the bookshelves next to him. He pulled off a couple of books. He held them up, and he said, look, I want you to purchase these books told us who the author was, explained that they will help us to see the significance of staying positive in this fight. And then finally, the meeting was over, and we walked down the hallway, walked back through the doctor's office, back to the elevator, back down to the first floor, and as we walked across the parking lot, I reached into my pocket, and I handed my wife my keys. I said, here, honey, you drive home. I don't think I can drive myself. 
I cried from the moment I got in the car to the moment I got home. And I kept crying even then, way after I got home. I couldn't believe it. My kids were teenagers. I had a ministry that I loved with all of my heart. Life was wonderful. How could it be that at 39 years of age that I could have cancer? How could it be? Well, that followed with a visit with an oncologist. And the oncologist continued those tests and began looking for other things and ended up with a thoracic surgeon. And the thoracic surgeon was going to go in behind my breastbone, a mediastinoscopy, going to go in behind my breastbone and get some of the tissue from around my lungs where they thought the cancer was located and going to test it and find out exactly what kind of cancer and what stage of cancer. And I'll never forget those days. Mr. Lemming, I have bad news for you. You have cancer. I can tell you that over the coming weeks, and that wasn't just a matter of a few days, that was a matter of several weeks as this whole thing was unfolding, my life was filled with fear. I would lay on the floor sometimes praying, begging God to help me. I was digging into the scripture, asking God for his help, asking God to do something in my life. I was asking God to help me with this fear this fear was overtaking me. I couldn't sleep at night. I couldn't eat a meal. I walked the floors. I just couldn't get my mind off of it. I know something about that kind of fear, and maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe that's something that you're going through because of this pandemic, and there's a fear that's rising within your own heart, and you wonder, how am I going to deal with this? How can I handle this? It was during that period of my life that I came to this story, and God taught me some things out of this story that I still use to this very day. When you find yourself facing this kind of fear and struggling with this kind of fear, the first thing you have to remember is Christ's presence. I want you to stop and remember who is in the boat this day with the disciples. It's none other than Jesus Christ himself. They were not alone in the midst of that storm. The Sea of Galilee, sort of like a bowl, if you will. It's surrounded by these mountain ranges, and the storms will come over those mountain ranges and down on that sea, and it'll create these terrible waves, and the sea will toss, and it can turn a boat, capsize a boat in just a matter of a few moments. The, the rain and the wind can be torrential but in the boat that day wasn't just those disciples. In the boat that day was Jesus Christ himself. But for some reason, they either ignored that fact, or maybe because they were so busy trying to save their own lives, they had forgotten that fact. And when we find ourselves overcome with fear, we have to stop and remind ourselves that Jesus is present with us at this very moment in our lives. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, he will never leave us, nor will he ever forsake us. We love that verse, but did you know that's a quote from an Old Testament passage? It goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Moses is about to die. Joshua is about to assume the leadership of the nation of Israel, and it was a daunting task. It was a daunting task. And God comes to Joshua, and he says, Joshua, you're not going to do this on your own. 
I'm not going to leave you, and I'm not going to forsake you. Like I've been with Moses, I'm going to be with you. And it's important for us to remember when fear begins to rise in our hearts, to steady our minds by thinking and reminding ourselves that we are not alone in this storm, that Jesus Christ is with us. He is there in that boat along with us. When I was a boy growing up, we had a two-story house. It was on Miriam Lane in Decatur, Georgia. It was a small house. When you think about houses today, I go back and ride by that house, and I realize it was almost like a crackerjack box compared to houses today. The upper floor is where we lived. All those rooms were finished, but the basement was a completely unfinished room. Over in one corner was where my daddy kept all of his ham radio equipment, where he talked to people all over the world by way of ham radio. On the other side of the steps, in that other corner, my dad had built some shelves, and we stored things on those shelves. Uh, there was the washing machine that was downstairs. There was no dryer. The dryer was the clothesline out in the backyard. And then there was this monstrous furnace. You know, if you're my age, you probably have seen one of these, but most of the younger people probably haven't. It was a monstrous furnace, and you could not see what was on the other side of that furnace in that part of the room on the other side of that furnace. What I hated about that basement was this. Sometimes my parents would say to me, David, go downstairs and get something off those shelves or out of that washing machine. Now, when you go down the steps, when you're top of the steps, you turn on a light. It lit up the stairs. But you could not turn on the light to that basement until you got all the way to the bottom step. And then even when you turned on that light, it didn't provide a whole lot of light in that basement. And if I was sent down into that basement, I went quickly down those steps, turned on that light, got whatever I was supposed to get, and I went running back up those steps because I was scared to death in that basement. That is, except when my daddy was down there. When he was in that corner where he was talking on his ham radio or he was listening to others talk on his ham radio equipment, my mother would say, David, go down and pick up something from the shelves or get something out of the washing machine. And I had no fear of going down those steps because my daddy was down there. And there was a calm that would come over you simply because you knew that your father was there. Yesterday, as I was preparing for this message, one of our ladies in our church sent me a, a text that included a dialogue, an imaginary dialogue between a person and God. I want to read it to you. Me. Okay, God, here's the thing. I'm scared. I'm trying not to be, but I am. God, I know. Want to talk about it? Me. Do we need to? I mean, you already know. God, let's talk about it anyway. We've done this before. Me. I know. I, I just feel like I should be bigger or stronger or something by now. God, waiting patiently, unhurried, undistracted, never annoyed. Me. Okay. So I'm afraid I'll do everything I can to protect my family and it won't be enough. I'm afraid of someone I love dying. I'm afraid the world won't go back to what it was before. I'm afraid my life is always going to feel a little bit unsettled. God, anything else? 
me. Everything else, God. Remember how your son woke up the other night and came running down the hall to your bedroom? Me, yes. God, you were still awake. So when you heard him running, you started calling out to him before he even got to you. Remember? Do you remember what you called out to him? Me. I said, you're okay, you're okay, you're okay, I'm here. God, why did you call to him? Why didn't you just wait for him to get to your room? Me. Because I wanted him to know that I was awake and I heard him and he didn't have to be afraid until he reached the end of the dark hallway. God, exactly. I hear you, my child. I hear your thoughts racing like feet down the dark hallway. There's another side to all of this. I'm there already. I've seen to the end of it. End of it. And I want you to know right here, as you walk through it all, you're okay. I haven't gone to sleep, and I want me crying. Can we sit together a while? Can we just sit here a minute before I go back to facing it all? God, there's nothing I'd love more. The purpose of that little dialogue is obvious, isn't it? The reality that Christ is with us, that God is with us, is a stabilizing and a calming effect upon our hearts. And at that period in my life when my world had been turned upside down, as I read this story, I began to realize I'm not in this alone, that Christ is with me, the Father is by my side, and he'll never leave me, and he'll never forsake me. The second thing we have to remember is Christ's power. Christ's power. This storm is raging. This boat is being tossed to and fro. It feels like it's going to capsize. The disciples are just trying to keep themselves from dying at sea. Finally, they lose patience with Jesus and they go back and they wake him up from his sleep. Now, I don't know how this exactly unfolded, but I can just imagine a little of how it unfolded, maybe in a Charlton Heston kind of a voice. I can see Jesus moving from the stern of the boat to the bow of the boat. Maybe he puts one foot up on the edge of that boat, and with that booming voice, he says, Peace, be still. And suddenly, the wind was gone, and those heaving waves all of a sudden went totally still. I mean, even these men who have been with Jesus for some time now and have seen other miracles that Jesus performed were absolutely stunned by what they had just witnessed in the midst of this storm. Jesus had just calmed that storm and no human being could do what Jesus just did. And it demonstrated to them Christ's incredible power, that there is nothing that's beyond his power. There is nothing that's beyond his control. Something that might interest you is that this is one of four miracles in the gospel of Mark that illustrates the divinity of Jesus Christ. Listen to Albert Barnes in what he has to say about this miracle. There is something exceedingly authoritative and majestic in this command of our Lord standing amidst the howling tempest on the heaving sea and in the darkness of the night, by his own power he stills the waves and bids the storm subside. None but the God of the storms and the billows could awe by a word 
the troubled elements and send a universal peace and stillness among the winds and waves. He therefore must be divine. And when there's storms in our lives and our world is turned upside down and there are pandemics around us, we have to be reminded that it's not outside of the control of our God. He knows exactly where we are. He knows exactly what's happening. And he knows exactly what he's doing. You know, sometimes we judge God by ourselves. If one of our children was in a storm, we would do everything we could to fight our way through that storm to get our child and bring them out of that storm. But that's not always the way that God works. Sometimes God is allowing us to stay in the midst of that storm because he's at work in our lives, perfecting us and making us more like himself. As a matter of fact, this storm exposes something about these disciples. Did did you notice it in verse 40? But he said to them, why are you so fearful? Now listen, how is it that you have no faith? Can you imagine? In those moments, God was using the storm to teach these disciples something they desperately needed to learn. They needed to learn faith in him. They needed to have exposed their own faithlessness. And God uses storms, but never forget, there are no storms that are outside of his power. He knows exactly what he's doing. And when he chooses, he can step to the bow of the boat of your life, and he can speak with that voice of authority, and he can say, peace, be still, and instantly the storm will lay down. And in that period of my life, I needed to be reminded not only of Christ's presence with me, I needed to be reminded of Christ's power, that he was greater than anything that I was facing in those moments of my life. There's a third thing we have to remember in the storm, and that is Christ's promises. We have to remember Christ's promises. You know, there's something that's said here that is in a verse just before the ones that we read. Let me read it to you. Verse 35. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, listen, let us cross over to the other side. Hear his words. Let us cross over to the other side. In other words, he had made a promise to these disciples that they were not going to die in the middle of the sea, that it wasn't going to be a storm that was going to overtake them and capsized their boat. It wasn't going to be their demise in the midst of this weather. He had given them a promise that they were going to the other side, and they weren't going to die at all. You know, when we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, not only do we need to know Christ's presence and Christ's power, we need to be reminded of Christ's promises. And the Bible is filled with the promises of God. And we take hold of those promises and we hold on to those promises in the midst of the storm. Dr. Herbert Lockyer was a Bible scholar, a genius. I have probably 40 or 45 of his books in my library, but one set of those books, about 25 of them, are his All in the Bible series. All the men of the Bible, all the women of the Bible, all the miracles of the Bible, all the animals of the Bible. It's an incredible series of books. Dr. Herbert Lockyer, this Bible genius, said that someone told him there were 30,000 promises in the Bible. 
Another man who was reading the Bible read it 27 times in order to identify every promise that he could find said that in doing so, he calculated that there are 7,487 promises from God to man and 8,810 total promises in the Bible. Now, there's a discrepancy in the numbers, and probably most of that is determined by how you categorize, how you catalog a promise. But no matter how we come to that number, whatever number we come to, the Bible is filled with the promises of God that are made to us as his children. One of those that was in the boat that day with Jesus when this storm arose wrote later on these words, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4, exceeding great and precious promises, and they're all over the Scripture. And when we find them, we hold on to those promises because they stabilize us in the midst of the storm. During that time of my life, as I was getting ready for the media stenoscopy, I was to be there late morning. So I went out on my back porch, and I sat down, and I opened my Bible, and I was reading before I was to leave. And I was reading from Psalm 116. And I came to these words in verses 7 and 8. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. Now, I didn't take that, that passage to say to me that my cancer was going to be gone. But I took that passage to mean that God is going to give me the rest that I need. And I held on to that promise that God would give to me the rest that I need. And may I just tell you that you have to hold on to those promises and you have to squeeze those promises and hold them tight. And in recognizing those promises and coming back to them again and again, God brings stability in the midst of your fearful circumstances. There's a fourth thing you have to remember when there's a storm that's raging about you. Not only Christ's presence and Christ's power and Christ's promises, you have to remember Christ's passion as well. You know, it's interesting how the disciples went and awakened Jesus. In verse 38, he was in the stern asleep on a pillow, but they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, listen to the words, do you not care? that we're perishing? Do you not care? You know, sometimes when the storms are raging around us, when our world has been turned upside down, when there's pandemics, sometimes we wonder, does God really care? If you had been in that boat, you may have been just like these disciples. You might have asked the very same question, do you really care about us? And of course, the answer is always that God cares. He is passionate about us. He loves us with all his heart. But do you know that God is more interested in his greater purpose accomplished in our trials than our immediate deliverance from our trials? Whenever there's that going on in our lives, these storms and trials going on in our lives, God is at work doing something within us. God is at work making us more like his son. Isn't that what Romans 8.28 is about? That he's working all things together for our good? And what is that good? In the very next verse, it's Christ-likeness. 
And those storms are at work making us more like Jesus. Never question the fact that Christ loves you, that he's passionate about you, that he hasn't forgotten you, and that he cares about you in the midst of the storm. He cares about you in the midst of the storm. And more than 20 years ago, as I read that story and I thought on that story, and I was reminded that Christ is with me, that he's more powerful than anything that I'm facing, that his promises would help stabilize me, and that he loved me no matter what happened to me. I sat on that back porch. I read those promises that I could have rest. And I said to God something that I had not said in the previous weeks or months leading up to it. I said, God, whatever you want to do with my life, it's yours. You can have it. If you want me to live, I'll live. If you want me to die, I'll die. I am yours, and I am in your care, and I leave myself to you, and I'll never forget. As I never forgot what the doctor said that day, I'll never forget the calm and the rest that came over my heart and over my soul so that I could get up and I could go to that surgery recognizing that Christ was with me. His power was greater than anything I was facing, knowing that he was passionate, that he loved me, and that I could hold on to these promises, and he would stabilize my life in the midst of the storm that I was facing. You know, when I read this story, there's some questions that come to mind about these disciples and about you and me. Why is it He is often the last one to whom we turn. When there was no one else to take care of the disciples, when they couldn't save themselves, he was the last one to whom they turned. And why didn't they look to him and see that he wasn't disturbed by the storm? Maybe that would have helped them to be calm in the midst of the storm. And why didn't they just awaken him first instead of last? Why didn't he just go, why didn't they just go to him first and say, Jesus, we're in a storm? But they waited until they had tried to save themselves and they couldn't, and they turned to Jesus and they asked him for his help. But can I tell you, on that day, they learned something about the presence of Christ and about the power of Christ and about his promises that they were going to the other side, and they learned something about his passion for them, that he loved them, that he wasn't going to let them die in the middle of that storm. And can I tell you that while the storm is raging around you, if you'll focus your mind on Christ's presence and on his promises, on his power and on his passion for you, God will bring a stability to your life that you can't have any other way. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 127, verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. For days and weeks, I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep because I wasn't really focusing where I should have been focusing. I was looking at the storm rather than looking at Christ and trusting him in those moments. And that's where some of you are today. Your heart is overtaken with fear. You can't sleep. You can't eat. You don't have any comfort. You you don't have any rest to yourself 
You're afraid to walk outside the door. You're afraid to touch anything. And there's some reason why we have to be very careful. Nevertheless, the fear has overtaken your life. And God comes to you today and he says to you, listen, I'm with you. You're not alone. And I'm greater than all that's going on. I know exactly what I'm doing. You look to my word and you hold on to these promises and you let these promises stabilize your lives in the midst of this storm. And don't you ever forget, I'm at work in your life doing something because I love you. I care about you. And if I've allowed the storm, I have a purpose for the storm to accomplish. Well, let's just make this practical for a moment. There's four lessons that you can learn, four lessons that I learned from this story. Lesson number one, followers of Christ should not always expect smooth sailing. Followers of Christ should not always expect smooth sailing. If somebody told you that becoming a follower of Jesus meant that there were just going to be fields of flowers before you in one pleasant walk through the rest of your life, they didn't tell you the truth. I hope that you have many of those kinds of experiences, but it was Jesus who said that in this world, we will have trouble. We live in a sin-cursed world. Why are there diseases and why is, are there viruses like the ones we're fighting right now? Because we live in a sin-cursed world. This is not heaven. This isn't the new heaven and the new earth. And in this world, there will be these kinds of storms, and we have to recognize it. We get through this storm, and we will get through this storm. There'll be other storms that'll come in the course of our lives, and we can't be shaken by that reality. Lesson number two, even those closest to Christ can sometimes become frightened. There was nobody closer to Jesus than those disciples, and yet they were afraid. And probably had we been in the boat with them, we would have been afraid. We're not judging anyone for the fear that they feel at this moment. You're human. God understands our humanness. But he gives us a recipe. He gives us answers to help us in the midst of our fear, to bring stability, to give us rest, to give us a sense of security for us to know that he's watching over us and that he loves us. And even good Christians sometimes worry and get anxious and get afraid. Lesson number three, Christ's power is able to quiet the most violent of storms. I know you're watching the news media like I am, and we don't know when the end of this will come. We don't know how long it's going to go on. We don't know when the medications will be developed in order to be able to treat it. And we wonder, will there ever be an end to this? But I want to remind you that in the midst of the most violent storm, Christ's power is greater than it all. And we need to be calling out to him and asking him for his help, for his guidance, for his intervention. But then there's one last lesson, and maybe... For many of you, this will be the most important lesson. When embarking on life's voyage, be sure to have Christ in your boat. Did you hear that? When embarking on life's voyage, be sure to have Christ in your boat. You say, what, what are you telling me? I'm telling you that there's altogether a different way that believers can deal with these matters than unbelievers. And if you've never received Christ as your Savior, you need to invite him into your boat. 
You need to invite him into your life. Then you'll begin to understand his presence and his promises. You'll begin to find his peace. You'll understand his passion for you. You'll understand his great power because he'll change you. But you've got to receive Jesus for yourself. Jesus came from heaven to earth. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary to pay a penalty he didn't owe. It was our penalty that we owed. He was buried in a grave and he rose that third day on that Easter Sunday morning victorious. And now he invites everyone who will come to him to receive the gift that he purchased on that day, the gift of eternal life, to invite Jesus into their boat, into their life. Could I ask you now, if you've never done that, this is your opportunity to invite Christ to save you. It's this simple little prayer. It's not the words that save you. It's the attitude of your heart to believe. But you simply tell Jesus that you're a sinner, that you know he is the only Savior, and you ask him to save you from your sins instantaneously, immediately, God hears that prayer and God answers that prayer. You might not feel any different, but the fact of the matter is at the moment of that prayer, you are different because Jesus came into your life. He entered into that boat and now no matter what storm you may face, you have his presence always with you. You have his promises to stabilize you. You have his power that is greater than anything you face, and you can rest in his passion for you. He loves you, and he wants to help you. There's an old hymn that we used to sing. Sometimes we still do sing. It's beautiful, and I want to quote it to you. Be not dismayed whate'er betide. God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide. God will take care of you. Through days of toil when heart doth fail, God will take care of you. When dangers fierce your path assail, God will take care of you. No matter what may be the test, God will take care of you. Lean, weary one, upon his breast. God will take care of you. And then the chorus that gets repeated after each of those verses, God will take care of you. Through every day or all the way, he will take care of you. God will take care of you. Your life is turned upside down. You're locked into a confined situation where you can't go out. There's social distancing so you can't mix with your friends and you're wondering, where is this all going to end? And the fear begins to rise within you. Remember, Christ is present with you. And he's powerful over everything that we face. Hold on to his promises. Read his word. Grab hold of those promises and let those promises stabilize you. And remember, he is passionate about you. He loves you with all his heart. Hey. He loves you so much, he sent his son to die for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you will calm our troubled spirits. We wonder what's going on around us and when it's going to end. And Lord, we're anxious. We don't admit it sometimes. We won't acknowledge it. But the reality is we feel it. 
And Lord, there's that sense within us that just things aren't right. And Lord, sometimes that fear and that anxiety grows so deep, we can't sleep, we can't eat, we wring our hands, we, we walk the floor, we can't take our eyes off the news media. Father, I pray that you'll help us to see that if the creator can sleep, then so can we. That you're with us. You're not going to leave us or forsake us. That you're powerful over whatever it is we face and that your promises are great. Exceeding great and precious promises. And that, Lord, you love us and you will never stop loving us. And, Lord, I pray that there'll be some who have asked you to be their savior. They worded a little prayer that was the expression of their heart to say, Jesus, save me. And Father, I pray that they'll let us know in the dialogue boxes or by way of an email, just let us know so that we can rejoice with them today. And I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.